There is a Russian proverb that says, shame is worse than death. And maybe you can identify with that. Perhaps you've known such a deep sense of shame that you've even thought you'd rather not live and then have to live with it. You felt that anything would be better than having to face people. And even if they're not, you felt that everyone is looking at you, everyone is talking about you, and you felt that you can't keep going. The effects of shame on people are crippling. Someone once described their feeling of shame as a cloak that lives under their skin. In other words, it's never very far under the surface. And what further complicates things is that many people who feel shame actually have no need to be ashamed. Whereas others who, who, who should feel shame sometimes don't. Still others do have a sense of shame but they don't understand why or even really understand that it is shame. Because our society has told them that their bad actions are actually good. They've been told that they shouldn't be ashamed of what they're doing. And yet they still can't shake that feeling of shame. And tonight I want to speak primarily to those who feel shame over things that they have no need to feel ashamed about. Uh, but I, I do also want to speak to those who do have a reason to feel the way they do. Because in both cases, there's hope. Uh, there is hope. The title of tonight's talk is Shame, Do I Have to Live With It? And the answer for both categories of people is actually no. If your shame is unneeded, then you don't need to live with it because you shouldn't feel it. And even if your shame is deserved, then it can be taken away. Though, of course, while I'm speaking of different categories of people, we're often a bit of a mix. Uh, we feel shame over things that we don't need to be ashamed of. We carry legitimate shame over things that we've done in the past. And we may also need to realise that even if some of the things that we've done uh, are, are not shameful in the eyes of society, that, that they are actually shameful, even if society says they're okay. And surely we don't want to lose the sense that sometimes shame is legitimate. We could ask the question, is it, is it ever right to feel shame? Because there are many writers today, there are many therapists today who would say that shame is always a bad thing. But surely we don't want to go to that extreme. We will say of someone, have they no shame when they should have shame? We'll say that someone is shameless. And so we, we must walk the tightrope of being sensitive to people who are feeling shame that they shouldn't without going to the extreme of saying that shame is always wrong. I mentioned yesterday that anxiety is increasingly being called an epidemic in our society. Well, shame has also been described as an epidemic, but an unspoken one. And perhaps 
perhaps it hasn't been spoken about in churches as much as it should have been. Some would say that we're good at talking about guilt, but not so much about shame. And although the two things are often related, they're not always, and they're not the same. They're not the same. And actually, the Bible has a lot to say about shame. It would be simplistic to to base anything on a simple word count, but the word shame is used in the Bible more than the word guilt. And even today, outside of, of the Western world that we're part of, shame is a much bigger issue than it tends to be here. In other parts of the world, there are honor and shame cultures where the big question isn't about whether something is right or wrong, but the big question is how it will be viewed, how it will be received. There are cultures where unwritten rules are much more important than written rules. And even here in the West, as we try and redefine right and wrong, shame is coming to the surface. Because even if you redefine right and wrong, you can't get rid of shame. And deep down, people know something's not right. Deep down, people know something is not right. When Jesus was on earth, he encountered people who had a legitimate sense of shame. In other words, people who were right to feel shame. Uh, There was Zacchaeus, the tax collector, who was a sellout to the Romans, who was robbing his own people. And he lived with the shame that would have come from that. And so no one was going to make room for him in the crowd the day that Jesus came to town. Or there was the woman at the well who'd had five husbands and the man she was living with when she met Jesus wasn't her husband. And because of her sense of shame, she had to go and get water in the middle of the day, at the hottest point of the day, uh, rather than go in the morning with the other woman. Now that's not to justify how people treated those individuals But they were both right to feel shame for their actions, for for stealing and for adultery. So Jesus encountered people who, who bore a legitimate sense of shame and he helped them face up to it and be cleansed from it. Jesus didn't just say, well, forget about that sense of shame, it's okay. He, he, he put his finger on, on what their issue was, or, or even being around him, uh, it, it brought a conviction of sin, and that, those sins were dealt with, uh, and their shame was taken away. But Jesus also restored people who felt shame, even though they had done nothing wrong. Those with the, the dreaded skin disease of leprosy, for example, or the woman with the discharge of blood. Yes, Jesus dealt with people's guilt, but let's, miss, let's not miss that he also encountered people who had secret or not-so-secret shame, and a shame which wasn't the result of anything that they had done. And we'll come back to those examples later. But the Bible passage that I want to go to first tonight is a much less familiar one, uh, but it's one which is hugely relevant to our society. 
It's one we find in the book of 2 Samuel. It's the story of a young woman who was abused, uh, abused by a trusted family member, as is still often the case. It's the story of David's son Amnon and his half-sister Tamar. Amnon is obsessed with her. He pretends to be ill so that he can be alone with her and then he grabs her and forces himself on her. She pleads with him not to do it. She's begging him and as she does so, she utters what I think is one of the most haunting questions in the Bible. As for me, where could I carry my shame? Where could I carry my shame? She warns him that he will bear both guilt and shame if he goes through with it. She says he would be regarded as an outrageous fool in Israel, as a shockingly wicked person. But she also thinks of the shame that she will feel as a result. And she asks, where could I carry my shame? Now, when when she talks about shame, we need to be clear that she had done nothing to be ashamed of. Shame and false guilt go very closely together. Uh, People can even end up thinking, I must have done something to make him abuse me. This must be my fault. And so we need to be clear that that is not the case uh, here or in any situation where there's abuse. Uh, There's nothing about this act of abuse that Tamar needs to be ashamed about because she has done nothing wrong. But she still knows that if her half-brother goes ahead and does what he wants to do, she will have this overwhelming sense of shame because he will have put her to shame. And that is one of the great outrages of life in this world. Shame without redress, shame without justice. And even if the law does eventually catch up with someone, it can't restore what has been taken. One man who was abused by his father at a young age put it like this. He said, shame was and is the sense that I am in some way fundamentally bad or wrong and that everyone knows that or will find it out eventually. He said that the shame affects his relationship with close friends, uh, making him question their friendship and it affects his relationship with his wife, questioning her love for him. And there are, uh, of course, a whole host of other reasons why people may feel shame. Uh, Someone might feel shame because of unemployment and being unable to provide for their family. Uh, Some who who do work feel ashamed because of the job that they have. Uh, Some may feel shame because of a sense of failure. Failure in their own eyes or in the eyes of someone else. Academic failure, workplace failure, the failure of a relationship, those who've ended up homeless or been made redundant. Even if they haven't done anything wrong, they feel shame because they don't match up to other people. Closely tied in with that is the shame of rejection. Uh, The person who's applied for job after job without success the person whose spouse or partner has walked out on them. Someone has said that once your eyes are opened to see the types of shame that people are battling with, you see it everywhere. 
and those who are ashamed feel worthless, empty or hollow. So can anything be done about shame? Is there an answer to that haunting question, where can I carry my shame? Our society doesn't have many answers. The police may arrest an abuser, the courts may find them guilty, but none of that necessarily touches the issue of the shame that the victim feels. Tamar meant her question to be a rhetorical one. Where can I carry my shame? She didn't expect an answer. But actually there is somewhere we can carry our shame. And that is the cross of Jesus Christ. And that brings us to the question of how God feels about those who have been shamed by others. One minister who wrote a little book about shame says that the person living with an unhealthy sense of shame often sees God as the accuser and not the healer. Someone living with shame may see God as as an accuser rather than a healer. If they believe in God at all, they see him not as the one who can restore, but as a silent judge in the background. Or as the one who's just ignoring what has happened to them. And if we think that that's what God is like, uh, we're very unlikely to approach him. If we have a sense that we're unworthy of other people's love, uh, we may well have a sense that we are unworthy of God's love. So what is God's heart for the shamed? Well, to answer that question, let's go to the one who reveals God's heart to us more clearly than anyone else. And that is Jesus Christ. It has been rightly said that there is no God in heaven who is unlike Jesus. There is no God in heaven who is unlike Jesus. That's just another way of saying what the Apostle John says in chapter 1 verse 18 of his gospel. No one has ever seen God The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Who's at the Father's side? Jesus. And he makes the Father known. He is, as Paul writes to the Colossians, the image of the invisible God. To put it in a nutshell, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. There is no God in heaven who is different from what Jesus was like. And so if we want to know God's heart for those who have been shamed, we can look at how Jesus acted towards those who had been shamed. And The two examples that I mentioned earlier are how he treated those with leprosy and how he treated the woman with the discharge of blood. And before we even look at the details, the outcome in both situations is the same. He took away their shame. Jesus is someone who can take away shame. Both shame we don't deserve and also shame that we do deserve. In Luke chapter 5 we see him heal a leper. It's widely accepted that the word for leprosy in the Bible is used for a whole range of different skin diseases. But it certainly seems to include modern day leprosy. 
Uh, leprosy today leaves people horribly disfigured. And yet the leprosy itself isn't what causes the disfigurement. Instead, the disease destroys the body's warning system to pain. It damages the small nerves on the skin's surface so that the victim doesn't notice burns, ulcers and other injuries. These then lead to permanent disabilities. Many go blind because they can't feel grit when it gets into their eyes. Damage due to loss of sensation can also leave victims with clawed fingers and toes. In some places you can even get rats chewing on sleeping lepers without them even knowing it. And in the passage we read, the man there hadn't got leprosy recently. He was full of it. He perhaps hadn't been able to feel any sensation for years. And his body would have been mutilated from head to foot and literally rotting away. It was a living death. In fact, one Jewish historian says that lepers were treated as if they were, in effect, dead men. They were isolated from the rest of society, and people generally assumed that leprosy was God's curse against sin. So they were both social and religious outsiders. They were outsiders. Maybe you felt what it's like to be an outsider. And as people, people go past, they, they look at you, you're different, and you feel a, a sense of shame. Uh, this man falls before Jesus, and there's only one question on his mind. He, he has no doubt that Jesus has the ability to heal him, but would he be willing to? And so he says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Why does he say, if you will? Perhaps he thinks his form of the disease is so uh, particularly ugly and revolting that Jesus won't want anything to do with him. Uh, and maybe someone even feels like that this evening. You've no doubt about Jesus' ability to save broken people in general, but you wonder if he could really save you. What has been done to you or what you've done to yourself is so bad that you feel Jesus would only look on you with disgust or condemnation but as we see next that is not the case because what Jesus does next is absolutely shocking it's not what anybody would have been expecting the most shocking thing about the whole story is not Jesus stopping to talk to this leper uh, uh, the man with his flesh rotting who people would usually run from in terror uh, nor is the most amazing thing that Jesus can completely heal a deadly disease. The most shocking thing in the whole story is that Jesus touches him. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. We need to realise that Jesus could have healed this man just by saying a word. He did it plenty of other times. But here he knows that he's meeting a man who's been starved of human contact for years. And so he stretches out his hand and he touches him. One old commentator said about this passage that it was divine to heal him, but it was human to touch. It was divine to heal, it was human to touch. And in Jesus we have both. 
the divine and the human perfectly coming together. What other religion worships a God who will come down to this world, see a man who nobody wants anything to do with, and then stretch out his hand and touch him? Those who struggle with shame feel about themselves the way lepers would have done. Uh, They feel worthless, uh, they feel unwanted, they feel like trash. And yet if that's you tonight, you need to know what Jesus is like. He draws near to those who others want nothing to do with. The other example we want to look at is of a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Hers was a very personal issue, one that she herself would always have been conscious of, whether people around her were conscious of it or not. It was an issue that would have cut her off from full involvement in society and something that had dominated her life every single day for over a decade. No doubt it was something she felt shame over, even though she hadn't done anything wrong. And yet her secret shame is something that she had had to tell others about. Uh, No doubt reluctantly, but we're told that she'd spent all that she had on doctors, so she would have had to go and and tell them. Uh, Perhaps this is a certain similarity to someone who's been abused and reports it. And no matter how how sympathetically they're treated, all those uh, painful memories are dragged up. And so having heard about Jesus, she thinks, I don't need to talk to him. If I just touch the corner of his robe, I'll be made well. And she is made well. But then she does or then Jesus does the thing that she no doubt was dreading the most. He draws attention to what she's done. I'm sure it might even have been a toss-up for her. Do you want uh, to, to continue to suffer or do you want to be healed but then have it drawn attention to? Jesus says, who touched me? And at that point the woman tells him her whole story. Perhaps we wonder, could Jesus not have just healed her and moved on? Could she not have remained anonymous? You know, I've, I've spoken to someone who, who, who just, to, to people who, who, who like the idea of church where they can slip in at the back and be anonymous. Uh, but Jesus won't let this woman remain anonymous. Why? Because he doesn't want her to look on him as if he was some sort of miracle worker who didn't care about her personally. He wants to treat her as an individual, not as someone anonymous. I've talked to people who've received counselling over the phone and they're frustrated that the person won't come and see them face to face. Or they meet with a, a support worker face to face, but, but it's, it's one person one week and another person the next week, uh, and they can't build up a relationship with them. But Jesus is treating her as an individual, and he wants to fan into flame the faith that she's shown. 
So we have two individuals suffering from crippling shame that isn't their fault. They both meet Jesus and their lives are transformed. And tonight you can meet the same Jesus that they met. Because not only did he die a shameful death on the cross, which he did nothing to deserve, he rose again. And you too can find healing if you look to Jesus. The one who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Let me tell you about one young woman who found this hope. She had been the victim of abuse and she used to scrub herself in the bath with a scarring pad, uh, the same sort of thing that would normally be used to clean dirty pots. It was her attempt to get rid of the stain she felt in her soul. Some Christians met her, they, they talked with her, they cried with her, uh, they took her to some of the, the songs in the Bible, some of the, the Psalms which talk about shame, some of the, the songs that we're singing tonight. And they took her to the cross where Jesus bore our shame. And one day she bought a cloth. She no longer needed the scarring pad. Where can I carry my shame? You can carry it to the cross and have it lifted off your shoulders and placed on the shoulders of the Lord Jesus instead. But just before we finish tonight, what if the shame that you feel tonight is for doing something shameful? Whether that is something our society would recognise as shameful or not, deep down you know that it is. And actually, that is all of us. We have all sinned in various ways. We're all sinned against in various ways, rather. But the message of the Bible is that we're also all sinners ourselves. We've all done things that we're ashamed of. And if you know what it is to feel that tonight, then don't try and ignore it. That might be the message of some uh, they might say, well, it's fine, just ignore your feelings of shame. But that won't actually deal with the problem. Rather, what you need to do is bring your shame to the cross. Why did Jesus die on the cross? The very reason is that even though he had done nothing deserving of death, never mind such a shameful death as crucifixion, we have, we do deserve to be put to shame because of what we've done. But he went to the cross to take the guilt and shame of all who would believe in him. He pays the price for our guilt and he also takes our shame. That doesn't mean that we, we won't have to face any consequences. Uh, Zacchaeus, who I mentioned earlier, vowed to pay back four times what he had stolen he still had to face the consequences for his sinful actions uh, committed before he was a believer, but the guilt and shame were taken away. And the Bible says, whoever believes in him, in Jesus, will not be put to shame. So, where can you carry your shame? 
even if unlike Tamar that shame is deserved which is true of us all at times you can carry it to the cross where it will be dealt with once and for all to sum it all up shame do we have to live with it the answer isn't ignore it and do whatever you like nor is the answer come to Jesus and you can ignore the consequences of anything that you've ever done but the answer is that you don't have to live with it because you can know even now that on the day of judgment nothing you've done will be held against you because Jesus died with his name against it rather than yours and that is the good news that we have to share tonight everything you've ever done if everything you've ever done uh, that you uh, were ashamed of could be dredged up and written down, Jesus' name would be put against it. Your name would be scored out. That is the gospel. That is our hope. Amen. Uh, let's sing in closing from Psalm number 89. Uh, Psalm number 89. It's the four verses printed on the back of your order of service. Speaking in verse 1 of someone who was covered with shame. Someone who was cut short in the days of his youth. And it's ultimately a description of the Lord Jesus Christ. He died on the, the, the cross aged only 33. He was cut short in the days of his youth. Having never done anything shameful himself. Uh, nothing uh, that would ever come into his mind of something that he had done that, that he should have been ashamed of and yet he bore the guilt and shame of his people uh, then in verse 2 we have a prayer that we can pray remember Lord your servant's shame and we're asking God to remember it in order that he might do something about it in order that he might remove it then in verse 3 we sing of God's anointed one. Uh, that word anointed is where we get the word Messiah or Christ from. Again we're singing of the Lord Jesus being reproached, being put to shame. And because he was put to shame in our place we finish with a great declaration of praise to God. And now forever let the Lord be blessed I say again forevermore. So let it be. Amen. Yes. And Amen. Psalm 89 the four verses on our sheet will stand and sing praise. <laughs>